if I have a tattoo, it's going to say, they say, quote, the first 175 million are the hardest. <laughs> that's uh, that's the one thing I would I would get a tattoo of. And, and I agree. I, I think the first 175 million are certainly the hardest. <laughs> You're funny. Okay, so welcome to the podcast B2B SaaS CEOs with me, Joseph Olsen, as your host. I'm the CEO and founder of VAM that helps sales teams close more deals and book more meetings through video messaging. The idea to this podcast was born because one of my personal goals is to be a world-class B2B SaaS CEO and therefore I need to learn from the best. And I want to take you with me on this journey. Hi, my name is Marcus Rader. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Hostaway and you're listening to B2B SaaS CEOs. Hi, and welcome, Marcus. Well, thank you very much for having me here, Joseph. It's so great to have you here. And first thing first, who is Marcus? Please help me get the context of how you look at yourself. This is a a question that I don't think anyone ever asked. I've done hundreds of interviews over the years, and it's uh, I would say I'm a... I'm a global citizen and I'm one of the happiest people on the on the planet right now. That's uh that's all I can say. I've lived in a lot of countries. I, I happen to be very fortunate to be able to live wherever I want and I, I choose to live in in Toronto, Canada. But uh but yes, I'm I'm a very happy person. That's who I am. Have you always been a very happy person? No, I'm one of the most negative, uh, complaining people you'll ever find. And those who work with me, they know I, I complain a lot. And I complain about the small stuff, not about the big things. I don't complain, you know, if I have to go hungry just to pay a salary to my staff. I don't complain about that. But I complain about the little things, like when they when they haven't optimized a formula in a spreadsheet well enough to my standards. That's what I complain about. The nitty gritty A B things, A B testing things. Yes, I understand. And um, now you you went really high level. And if we take this down one layer more today, who is Marcus in the context of the business person, the leader, the entrepreneur, and with your company? So uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder at a company called uh, Hostaway. We produce vacation rental software. And uh, no, we do not compete with Airbnb. We're actually a preferred plus partner of Airbnb. We sell our software only to businesses. So they manage the back end of the operations. They manage their cleaners. They manage their accounting. They manage their, their automations. They even manage their smart locks so that guests can check into homes. And we we have done a an investment round in 2023 that was announced about two months ago of 175 million. And this is in a climate where many businesses are struggling, especially those who are reliant on on low interest rates. And at the same time, getting an investor right now, if you have an unproven business model, is going to be much more difficult than it was in 2021. And uh, so. Yeah, that's that's the context of who I am and why I'm here today. And probably one of the reasons why I'm, why I'm so happy as well. 
And as as you uh, when you started to talk about the company, you immediately afterwards say, "And no, we're not a competitor." To me. Have you gotten that assumption or question a lot? Yes, absolutely. People always say, "Oh, you're like Airbnb," but uh, but no, no, that's that's not it. So uh, normally, I always ask, "Okay." What does your company do? Do the elevator pitch. But I think you covered that very well uh, as a part of when you talked about you in the context of HostAway. Uh, congratulations to the huge round, to the success you have harvested so far. And one could assume that from your point of view, you have just begun, right? Exactly. It's starting now. <laughs> yeah, it's starting now. And um, for this, uh, in this interview, I have a segment here that is uh, that I love very much and the listeners love. It's five quick ones. And here, Marcus, you need to be quick. I will throw up a word and you should say the first thing or sentence that you think of when you hear that word. So that is the framework. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Vacation. Constant. It shouldn't be an exception. It should be the norm. Property management. Accounting. Sauce. The most exciting thing in life. In fact, the only thing that we live for. This is this is it. This is sex with cocaine. That's sauce. <laughs> the future of tech. There's a lot of AI and a lot of more buzzwords to come. And the last one, 2024. This is when people finally stop talking about the recession and start talking about the roaring 20s. I would say this is one of the best quick answers I ever had in five quick ones. Yeah, rock and roll. Well, thank you. I told you, I don't practice before, so this was completely improvised. (laughs) And uh, uh, let's continue, Marcus, to the why, the big why. Uh, I'm curious to hear... Why did you and your co-founders start HostAway? I really enjoy that that question because there's so many angles to it, and and the story changes. You know, I, we we now have about 140 employees. We could easily, actually, most of our competitors that are smaller than us have even double or triple that. But I, I always tell them the history, and it, it changes with with the years. But I, I'd say we wanted to prove something. We we had worked at other startups that were talking about virality. They were talking about success, and they they never really seemed to catch on. And when they, some of them even caught on it, but then decided to do something else instead. And we just wanted to prove ourselves that this is not. This is not rocket science. This is actually very simple. It's it's hard, grueling, basic work to set up a successful SaaS business, but it's something that anyone can do. And that's exactly what we went out to prove, and we proved ourselves successful. And why did you then sh- choose the the like segment and niche that you have shoes with Hostaway? So I think... Timing and luck are the two most important parts of any success story. This is not, I wish I would have come up with that myself, but actually we we interviewed ahead of the funding round. We spoke to a lot of successful people. Most of them had businesses that are far bigger, far more successful than ours. And we found out that most of them 
when asked, why were you successful? They said, oh, it was just luck and timing. Now, timing can be, you can actually impact the timing. You can choose which industry you go into and you can choose when. And I think that's where at least I did a lot of work. I saw that this is an industry that is not yet mature, not yet consolidating, but will be so soon. And at the same time, it's not too late to get in, but it is pretty hard to get in, which means there will be less competition. So it was almost impossible for us to get in because the doors were closing. It was like a like a slow motion scene in a movie where the doors are closing and you just run and you're the last one to get in. That's that's us. We were the last ones to get in. Everyone we compete with, some of them are even 20, 25-year-old companies and we're seven years. But nobody has come after us because the doors closed. <laughs> I, I love that angle. And uh, okay. Um, uh, yeah, okay. I Now I understand you why and uh, I have uh, heard it from two different angles. So, so I will stop with the why and continue with mistakes instead because i i i i'm a strong believer that the the only true way to learn is by hurtful mistakes so marcus what's one of the worst mistakes you have ever made connected to business and entrepreneurship i think one of the things that was incredibly hard to to understand is the difference between a founder and an employee. Because when you when you start out from nothing, you have to build your troops and they have to be as passionate, as engaged as you are. But at some point along the journey, people are not looking for an adventure anymore. They're actually just looking for a job. And usually they don't, they're not even interested in a job. They just want to get some money to pay for rent and food. That's mostly what they want. Maybe they want a pension, maybe a vacation. And finding that, you know, when, when, when do, when do I stop attracting passionate people and start attracting people who just want a job and a paycheck? That's, that's one of the mistakes because if you, if you go too corporate in the beginning, uh, then nobody will have any passion. Nobody will even understand what what the company is supposed to do. But if you if you let go of it, uh, if you don't let go of it, you you're gonna have a lot of very unprofessional people running the company, and the processes won't be set up. And as a result, a lot of people will be hurt in the way of either getting let go or even quitting their job uh, voluntarily. So that's that's one of the the big mistakes that that I've done. Uh, that being said, I, I want to be in my defense. I was I was a first time founder, so I think that mistake will be less visible the, in the next company if there ever is one. And this is super. This is this is a super interesting topic. And when where, where would you now with the knowledge you have now? When would you when would you say you should do the switch? When is the like perfect timing to? to start going for the crazy adventure startup people that just want yeah want to change the world and more look okay we need to good good people at running a business and just doing a, a job in i like 
questions that can be answered by a number. And in this case, the number is 1 million. When you, it's, it's incredibly difficult to get a business from zero to 1 million in ARR. And if you get there, you've done most of the hard work already. You don't need crazy, inspiring people who, who do out of the ordinary. After that, you need to find product market fit. And that's a very systematic research. That's, you need people who are good at spreadsheets, not people who are good at talking. Okay, so, so, so the 1 million ARR dollars, euros, pound, whatever, yeah, 1 million, that is your benchmark. You would see that after that, more, okay, n- n- now we're shifting the gears. Yeah, we, we waited until maybe three or four. Uh, that's, that's my mistake. It was a bit too late. Yeah, if, if you're if you're doing three four million, th- then that is a really like uh, successful bu- business with a lot of measures. Exactly, exactly. But one, you know, there's one mistake that that I think a lot of founders are completely ignorant of. Uh, the mistake we did was we didn't have enough money. Starting a business, the outcome should be, and many people say it shouldn't, but honestly, it should be making money. But what a lot of people fail to realize is that you need money. And we we had to go to investors and raise capital, which was, there were some upsides. But it's a bit like, uh, like saying that, uh, that slaves got education and satisfaction from their slavery. It's... Uh, it's it's a way of of cushioning the the truth. The fact is, if if there was one thing I could change, I would just have you know made sure we had more money before we even started the company. That's that's my number one advice to any founder: just make sure you have money because that really helps. It changes everything. So okay, uh, w- w- the, the the point where to go from yes, crazy passion, messy to more structured, one million AR, and also anyone listening to this, including myself. And next time, make sure that I and the listeners have more money so, so you can wait with investors longer and you can just thrive and hustle longer and survive. Exactly. And why are you saying this part with money? Is this boils down that you, from one angle, don't want investors? You just basically think that the, the longer you can wait with it and just run on your own speed, it's that better or what? what where is the where is the end game here with that thought? I think there's there's a very there's a massive difference when we say investors. I mean, if we talk about someone some pension funds funds that yeah. are investing in the stock market, then they own a part of let's say Amazon or Apple. Yeah. That is very different from a early stage seed investor or VC. Yeah. And uh, I have nothing against, you know, if pension funds want to uh, develop real estate to rent out to pay some teachers' pensions, that's that's great. Yeah. But the whole VC ecosystem and landscape is created by rich individuals, not by institutions, by individuals who are out there to take advantage of those who have less money. And I find that a bit weak and pathetic, to be honest. And I think we see a shift here also with the camel starting to be the new cool thing and not the unicorn anymore. Uh, I hear more and more. And yeah, so so I just think this puts 
fire on that thought too. So, okay, moving on, Marcus, to the external question in this episode, because I, I, I want to lift up others too. I don't, I don't just want it to be me shooting questions towards you. I want to lift in cool people from the SaaS community. And now we're going to hear from Julia Söderqvist at Returbo. And this is her question. Hi, Marcus. What has been the biggest lesson for you so far from the journey with HostAway? That's a fantastic question. There is there is one thing that still amazes me every day. I have to learn this lesson every single day when I wake up. In order to build an amazing company, you don't need a big vision. You don't need a good idea. You don't need a you don't need a a great marketing campaign. Instead, what you need to do is hundreds of small, boring things, and you need to do them consistently. And you need to surround yourself with people who do hundreds of small, boring things consistently in order to build a great company. And this is something that I never see on stage when you talk to VCs. They never, they always say, oh, there was this, you know, person who had this great idea and vision, and that's why the company is successful. No, that's, that's BS. That's not true at all. It's true because there was someone who dedicated 365 days in a year and did five things every single day consistently over and over until they started to see the patterns, until they were able to automate whatever process they were building. And whether it's talking to a customer or measuring a metric that you do it manually so that you can automate it later, later, this is the number one success factor. And this is why companies that don't have strong founders tend to fail if the founders leave, because a lot of people are brought in and they just implement some system without ever doing the the grueling, boring work. Great input. And Julia, thank you for the question. Now, Marcus, it's time to talk about go to market. Let's dive down here. Can you share your main strategy and the key things that mattered the most when you went from, and we will take this section for section, but starting with zero, nothing, to 100k in ARR. Okay, that uh, for for the context, in our case, it took us about two years to develop the the initial product, and it took us another two years. So it took us essentially four years to get to that hundred thousand. One of the things that I I didn't realize at the time that that we were really lucky at, and that a lot of SaaS companies out there are struggling with, is called uh, called category. So at the time when we started out, there's there, we, there was a category of what today is known as vacation rental software. You can Google it and you'll find a list. And we are on that list, but there's other companies there. Now, a lot of SaaS companies don't have a category. If you are developing a tool hmm. that does something for someone in some situation, like maybe for a dentist to know when their next appointment is, there's no category for that. Or maybe there is, but... but <laughs> You need to figure out, is there a category of whatever you're trying to do? And then do you fit into that category? And then the second thing that that in our case that I also realized we were really lucky was that we had an inbound funnel all the way from the start. Before I even had a product, I had an ad on Facebook that said, do you want this stuff? In our case, vacation rental software. And people were clicking on it. And then I called them. 
So we were able to build an inbound funnel before we had anything at all, not even a website. I just had a fork. <laughs> wow, this um, is amazing. And, and that's our that was our way of getting to the hundred thousand. What, what did you tell them when you called them? Like I don't have nothing, but yeah, that's 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 literally what I said. Look, I'm really happy to talk to you. I actually don't have anything, but one day I will have the best whatever it is you're looking for. And because I'm talking to you, you're going to have access first and for free or cheaper than anyone else. But I need to know what exactly are you actually looking for? And turns out we found out that a lot of people were looking for different things, which I think if you ask a dentist, what's your number one problem when it comes to booking in patients, you'll find the same answer. There's a lot of different problems to be solved. And and this is where where you should focus on in, in the zero to 100 so you should find out who these people are, how to reach them. Are you in a category? If so, how do you compare to the others? Who are the others in the category? And then just see what would it take to take even one person that you're talking to from being a person to being a customer? In other words, what are the things you could build so that they could pay you money? Strong answer here. And moving the ladder, 100 to 1 million. Yeah, that's probably the the hardest part. I'd say it's quite easy to get to the hundred thousand if you're just because you people people like people, and if you're just passionate enough and engaged enough, they'll buy whatever you want to sell them. But to get to one million, the challenge is you have to actually start a mini organization. Meaning you need to you can't do it on your own. You can't be one person that develops a product, sells it, does the marketing, does customer success, onboarding, does uh, support and finance everything in between. You can't do that to 1 million. So you need other people. And suddenly everything that you care about, your customers, your product, your idea, your vision, you need to put those aside, which is incredibly hard to do as a founder. So, and and we, we didn't do it. That's one mistake we did. We didn't actually put those things aside. As a result of it, people that we hired, well, they, many of them, loved us but to be honest most of them just hated us as founders because we did everything wrong because they had their idea of what work life should be and this wasn't it <laughs> to be to be honest and I, I don't blame them i think they are right i think we were terrible leaders and we had our company was lacking everything that it should have however i i wouldn't do it any different way but but this is where where you really need to take the time and understand and I think it's also different if you have leadership experience or if, if this is your your second or your third company, this will be all much easier because you might already at an earlier stage be the one who is is hiring people to do things rather than doing it yourself. And now we are now we have passed a million. We are going from the passionate crazy stuff that you said earlier and here today and we, we need to be structured. What what are you doing then? Yeah, one, to, one so to ten million. One to ten million is where most of the companies that make it to hundred thousand, I th I think they will make it to to one million. But to get to ten million requires something entirely different. It's it's a bit like one of those match three games on the phone or, or or playing a puzzle. You need to test different pieces and you need to constantly do it. So you need to tear down your sales team rebuild it from scratch, 
then tear it down, then rebuild it from scratch. You need to do the same thing in marketing. Tear things down, rebuild from scratch. And you need to do these things consistently over and over again. And it can be incredibly hard or if you don't have the right staff. And most likely, if you have very passionate people that took you to one million, they're not going to be the ones who are willing to do it because it's grueling to take everything that you built, throw it in the garbage can, and then build it from scratch, but something different. And then the day after you throw it in the garbage can again, that's very demotivating work for someone who, who just wants to be on fire and passionate. But that's what you have to do, constantly reinvent, reiterate, and, and try over and over again. And it's a lot of it is the boring stuff. So to get to the one million, you need exciting stuff. You need to say, we are better or bigger or, or newer than anyone else. But from one to 10, you need the exact opposite. You need HR policies. You need uh, salary standards. You, your staff are going to talk to each other. You can't just improvise on that. They, they want to be paid fairly. Same thing with pricing. You can't just charge whatever you want from your customers. They are going to be talking to each other. So you need to have a, a good pricing plan. And that's just a couple of the surface level examples of things that you need to standardize that you don't need before 1 million. You have to have it in place to get to 10 million. And the last resort for like going over 100 million, you're hu super huge for being a sauce, but 10 to 100 million input here. So this is a very, in, in the founder journey, this stage is a very interesting one because it's the first time when you actually get, sorry, it's the second time when you actually get to work on strategy. The first time is before you hit 100,000. That's when you need the strategy. But the difference is that this time you actually have have an idea of what you're talking about because you've become an industry expert and your strategy is actually better than anyone else's. When you're between zero and 100, you need a strategy, but whether it's the right one is more dependent on luck because you simply can't have that experience. You need, you need some blind faith and luck to get, get there. But now it's, it's more about the strategy and there's, there's so many things you do you can do because once you get to 10 million or if you get to 10 million with good metrics then that means that you have built an engine that that eventually is going to go to 100 million no matter what unless you intentionally break it it's going to keep going because the processes that you set up to get to 10 million they are set up not to fail because every time they fail you go down from 8 to 6 and then you have to start all over and uh, once you get here, you have built an engine. And the only thing you're changing here with the strategy is, okay, are you going to wait 25 years to get to 100? Are you going to wait 20, 10, 5, or 2 years? And that's what you can choose. So it's not, about, it's not a question about whether you're going to reach 100. It's more a question of what are we willing to sacrifice? In other words, how many of our staff are going to have a heart attack? How many burnouts are we going to see? What about my health? Am I going to go to the gym or not? And that's a very, very real trade-off. I mean, I can you can do it in two years, but you won't be able to go to the gym. And maybe you have to get a divorce. No, you don't have to, but that will be the inevitable outcome. So maybe you compromise there and turn it into five years instead so that you can avoid 
divorce and a heart attack, which is it's pretty lame if you spend your entire life just to be alone and dead with a lot of money. Yeah, that's a lame <laughs> life, I'd say. So, Extreme. so it's it's yeah, that's. Of course, you need to still develop things just like from one to 10 million. But the difference is that you actually are hiring people who are way smarter and better than you at developing them. And not only that, you can afford to hire people who have done it many times before. Those yeah. people are very expensive. But, you know, someone who's done it five times, like let's say HR function, someone who has grown from 100 to 1,000 people and has done it five times, they're going to be ridiculously expensive to hire. But when you hire them, you don't need to worry about your HR scaling from 100 to 1,000 because that's someone else's headache. <laughs> I'm an amazing input here. And thank you so much for all the valuable insight, markets. And uh, yeah, I, I, we, we pause there with this topic and move on to talk some outreach. Because I, I'm I'm building a sales tool, VAM, so I'm always collecting data point uh, data points with from smart people like you regarding outreach. What's your preferred way of being contacted in a modern buyer's journey for B two B? So I'll I'll give you a good example. Actually, today I got called outreached. And they did a successful conversion with one touch point. Someone sent me an email and said, hey, we are coming to your city and we're going to have a half day free conference with free lunch. And we're giving you a free VIP pass worth $400 for an M&A conference where we're going to talk about the current M&A landscape and valuations and so on and so on. And I thought, well, that's exactly what I want to join anyway. And now they're giving it for free, so I'm going to join. So now I'm a lead, and probably they're going to offer some services there. That's that's fine, uh, and that's that's great. But that's yeah, you you got to know your your audience for that. The worst kind of outreach, and this is something that we make very sure that that because we we do cold outreach as well in our our business that we truly understand why someone would potentially be interested in in a product like this or have a need for a product. And secondly, that we respect their privacy. So I get a lot of cold emails and cold calls and none of them are effective because they they fail to address the one question that I have. They, they always have a question. They ask, are you Marcus? And my answer is always the same. What's it to you? But but they failed to address the one thing that I want to know is how did they come up with the idea to reach out to me and where did they get my contact details? So when we call our customers, we always say, hey, I was speaking to your competitor in the tiny town that you live in. You probably know him. His name is John. Oh, yeah, I, I know you, John. And then I saw your website and there... You, you wrote your phone number. That's why I'm calling you because I think your website could look a lot better. Now, that's nice because then you let the person know why you're calling, how did you find them, and they are actually someone who has a website that says, call me, my name is Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But people who reach out to me, I don't understand what goes through their mind. Why would they think that just because they bought some database that they would get access to talk to me. 
in fact, the, it, it will have the opposite effect. It, it will completely block their, their business from ever doing any business with us at all. So what I'm hearing first, like you said, successful, the right timing, the right topic that, that you need to have done research or time it well. And then once you reach out, uh, present yourself, why, wh- where did I got your contacts from? And yeah, take it from there. Yeah, I, I once got one, one of my standard questions is uh, to people who who insist, who don't understand that they should just hung up and never call me again. I asked them, okay, what is your private home address? They're typically SDRs in a company. And then what is your private cell phone number? And if they agree to give that, I text that. And I say, we continue the conversation there. But usually the SDRs, they say, oh, no, I don't feel comfortable giving out that information. And that's that's always, wait, so you feel comfortable getting my private information and using that to steal my time in order for you to make money. So that's okay. But me just asking for a mutual favor that you also give me your home address, your social security number, your date of birth, your childhood pet, your mother's last name and your private cell phone. That's somehow uncomfortable. You're in the wrong job. The wrong SDRs can really get burned by you. Uh, but thank you for the valuable data points, Marcus. It's, uh, yeah, I, I'm so curious about this topic, so I can go off alone. But we, we need to move on. Talking some KPIs. Which KPIs are the most important for you? And please share both a business KPI and a minimum a product KPI. I'd, I'd say we do absolutely nothing extraordinary here. In fact, we always, and I, I, I mentor a lot of a lot of founders as well. If you think you're unique, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> and if you think you can't use standard metrics that every other successful company is using because somehow you, your business or your industry is different, then you're wrong. It's that simple. Just use the standard. Other companies, they're measuring customer acquisition costs, lifetime value, and the ratio of that. They do their net retention. They they measure return on ad spend. They measure these very basics, customer NPS, for example. And that's what we measure as well. But before, we used to say some of these need to be adjusted and they don't apply to us. That's when everything went wrong. When we finally agreed that we are no different than anyone else, that's when things started going really well. Okay, I don't need to follow up here. I, I, I've interviewed so many SaaS leaders, so I know I know the classic ones, uh, and the listeners know that too. Okay, moving on to yeah, this is an interesting one. Now, now we sip it, and it's a topic of your choice. So, for a few minutes, something that you are nerdy and feel passion for, the floor is yours. Weakness weaknesses as a leader that is one of the things i really dislike i listen to a lot of podcasts such as many people do i I go and listen to people on stage and everyone always talks about success and they talk about sometimes they talk about mistakes but those are often they only mention the mistakes that they turn into a win you know hey we found out we were doing this and when we found that out that was wrong then we change it and our business skyrocketed that's always the same same stories. And it, it gets a bit 
annoying, I think, because the truth is is much more multifaceted and people would like to give an impression that they're somehow perfect and and that's that's not the case. Even the the superhumans like let's say Bill Gates and Elon Musk, they make the same mistakes that everyone everyone does. Like they they go into the bathroom and after the fact they find out, oh, I'm out of toilet paper. They make the same mistakes as everyone else. And this is something that I really don't like with the idolization of, of leaders that people somehow think they're different because they're really not. It's the same stuff at all. And let's say my one of my strengths is transparency, but one of my weaknesses is also transparency. I If someone fails with our company, let's say a customer is unhappy or an employee is unhappy or anyone else is unhappy, I take it personally because I want to find out why that is. And I want to see, is there anything I can do to rectify it? So, for example, if a customer is unhappy about something that a thousand other customers are happy with, then there's nothing we can do. Or an employee. But sometimes there's these edge cases where whatever worked in one place doesn't work in another. My, My biggest weakness is that I always try to be I always try to show empathy to people, which is which is a great skill. And it's one of the reasons why our business has been so successful. But it's also a massive weakness because people t- take advantage of that. They will brutally come after you if they see any sign of empathy. I, when I say people, I mean, the let's say, 2% of the people. The other 90, 98% of, of the population on this planet are great, but there's about 2% that will turn it against you. And that's, that's a challenge that I still haven't figured out. The psychopaths, they are out there. Yes, they are. They are. Uh, yeah, you mentioned the word brutal. And yeah, th- this interview, you, you have been delivering brutal truths. And yeah, it's, I, I, I love listening to you because you, you say, Things that I I know so many leaders think, but some like corporate bullshit pops up sometimes, and like oh, the, the classical things. So uh, thank you for sharing so much uh, interesting and relevant uh, answers. And uh, now I want to hear where do you get your drive from, Marcus? I think Jason Lemkin, who founded Saster, he he said it well. Founders are builders. They need to build. That's that's it. It's, you know, there, there's some kids out there that just enjoy Legos and they just build and they build. And when it's ready, they tear it down and they start building again. And most kids are not like that. It's only some kids that are so obsessed with getting that structure in place. And that's, that, that's what gets me up. I, I love building things. I like... I love seeing old creations, maybe a team that we set together two years ago, and suddenly the foundations are crumbling. It's not working. I love the idea of let's just, you know, tear it apart and rebuild from scratch. And then uh, we are entering the roundup now, so I only have a few questions left for you. If you would give yourself, your younger self, think five years ago, uh, the top one to three things to think of that you now know that you didn't know, what would you tell yourself? 
I I don't think I would I would change anything. In fact, I, there's there's a lot of things that are very painful in the past and that uh, related to building a company. A lot of decisions that have been made that have unintended or intended consequences that are very painful. And had I known about those before, I might have ended up making a different decision. You know, when you walk into a trap yeah. and it's slammed shut, you realize, oh no, I did this wrong. <laughs> and but it was all those decisions, and it was it was the happiness, but also the pain that eventually caused our company to be successful. And it's it's possible that without the pain we wouldn't have seen such happiness either. So I probably wouldn't change much, to be honest. Yes. Keep on walking, keep on running then. And uh, the very last question. Can you share one of your favorite life mottos? Yes. I'm actually, I don't have any tattoos, but I'm considering, considering getting one. And perhaps not everyone can relate to this, But if I have a tattoo, it's going to say, they say, quote, the first 175 million are the hardest. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the one thing I would, I would get a tattoo of. And, and I agree. I, I think the first 175 million are certainly the hardest. <laughs> You're funny. Okay, so, so now I'm quickly shifting the focus to you as been listening. Two quick ones. Number one. If you got a lot of value, laughs, uh, insights from Marcus, please tell a friend or a colleague to listen to this episode. It's been a great episode. And number two, press the subscription button. We have great guests coming here every week. And Marcus, a huge, a huge thank you for putting aside around 30 minutes together with me for this interview. Thank you so much for being here to help the community to keep on learning. Thank you very much for for having me. If anyone wants to reach out to me, just Google Marcus, post away LinkedIn. You'll find me and send me a message there. I'll, I'll get back to you. Stop.